This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Mary Lee, Jane, are you with us? Yes. Awesome. Hi. Well, I'm so happy to have you on New Books Network. I've been very excited to share this book since I read it a couple of weeks ago. Um, And I just wanted to know more about the two of you, if you could let people know your deal in the world as people, you know, not just as names on a book. Uh, And then also how the book came to be, how the two of you wound up co-authoring, and then any major like favorites or highlights from the book that you think really um, really shape your relationship to the project. I will defer to Jane to begin. Okay. Uh, sure. Um, I think our stories are going to crisscross is what you're going to find out. I've always been really interested in languages and I wanted that to be, I just knew it always would be my focus and my fun in life, but I never dreamt that, you know, rhetoric would be where I would land. And I always thought that I would uh, end up in studying something like French or Portuguese, but I was never really that interested in speaking languages. I just like problems in languages, like the problems of translation. So at 15, I took a forensics speech class in high school, and it was there. It was called forensics because that's about practice of speaking and debating in public, and it was there that I started debating and I found the word rhetoric and I found this discipline and I just began to explore it. And eventually it led to a doctorate from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, And so that's that's how I landed it. And I think I'm going to let Mary Lee jump in because we actually have very similar stories, which is was always kind of fun about Mary Lee. Yeah, I, uh, my story matches. I started uh, forensics in the seventh grade, uh, being brought up in a tradition of very, very old school gender norms of uh, girls should not speak. Um, they just serve the food and look pretty. And so when I learned that I could speak for competition, that changed my life. And, uh, and so I too, you know, grew up in oratory and the practice of rhetoric for competition and got a PhD in it. And um, my entry to it was always like, don't tell me I can't speak. You know, I'm, I'm going to learn how to do your power better than you. And so I kind of met Jane at that point where I was still like really full of it. Like I was going to, you know, be way more powerful than the power people are powerful. And Jane was like, what power? And I was like, what are you talking about? What power? And that's kind of what started our conversation that, you know, Jane really helped me question that I can't just 
be added to this power system because it's not inhabitable for me. It wasn't built for me. It was built mm. systematically to kill me, to catastrophically turn me down. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so Jane was, I, for a while, all I could do was just like gasp at Jane when she would say things to me because I was really naive about it. And, um, and then we had a, an advances in the history of uh, uh, American Society for the History of Rhetoric. I was the vice president at the time. And we had a pre-conference that we organized at the Newberry Library in Chicago. And uh, I organized a keynote panel that Jane was on and John Kalakis was on. And, uh, and I presented a paper. And, uh, and it was such a significant experience that Jane afterwards said, you know, we should just put our two papers together just as they are and see if we can't craft an essay like that. And so the idea of collaborating with Jane itself as a practice of creativity was really attractive. I just couldn't get enough of it, you know, and, and we just really collaborated so well. And that's where our first essay came from. And I'll stop there, Jane, and pass it over to you. Yeah. And I would just say that, you know, if you remember, I was always interested in problems of language. And I became interested in this problem of contingency. We tell the story in the introduction of our book about how we came to talk about that and how we met. But for me, Franz Kafka has this quote that I just love, and it always says that a book must be the ax for the frozen sea inside of us. And so I think revolution and thinking about contingency was really difficult. It's, it's hard, but it, there was something there that there was a sediment in rhetoric I just wanted to act through in that sense of kind of drilling down. And I think my way of writing is, uh, is, is that kind of way. I mean, I thought about this and my two grandfathers were lead miners in Missouri and my father was a mining engineer. So when I was working on these issues of contingency and the book, I often thought of myself as a miner, just drilling through years and sediment hard, poor kind of ways of thinking, not to look at problems of mind safety, but to look at problems of equity, uh, problems of inclusion, problems, and it was, and tropes then became my gems or my ornaments or my things that I wanted to pull out. So that's kind of like where we met and how we started talking about that and just digging down into it. Yeah, and the idea of a, a radical contingency, I didn't have the word for it at the time, but I would say radical contingency. And uh, Jane was really interested in accidental contingency in Aristotle and uh, the word sumbebikos. And so we did a lot of, you know, some of our initial research was um, um, really searching for how accidental contingency gets conceptualized and, uh, and uh, discarded in classical uh, rhetorical theory and, and, and the uh, intersections of classical rhetorical theory with all other kinds of uh, theory that was being produced at the time, like physics, biology, mm. um, ethics. Um, and so it was always that sense of the accidental that Jane and I were trying to 
search for and understand why that was disregarded, why it was such a threat. And along with that accidental contingency, Jane and I had this parallel interest, um, and I'll see if Jane agrees with this, that we were always interested in dismantling that uh, law of non-contradiction, that you cannot have A and not A simultaneously. Something about that law of non-contradiction and a contingency that's not random were the tools of empire that um, I think Jane and I were trying to, um, you know, to use her metaphor now, like my, like put an, put an ax into, um, I'll stop there. Yeah. And just before we get, this is great, but I've read the book. So just to, just for the people that maybe haven't, could you, could someone give me just a brief overview? Cause this sort of, this sort of structures the project of the rhetorical tradition, right? Aristotle for the sake of argument and this idea of sort of, non-contingency or how certain contingencies like don't really matter and we only look at these and what does that word even mean and then yeah. what is this radical contingency x and i yeah the, and then the term for that and maybe just so people have a general sense of that project you're intervening in i'll start it off and pass it over to jane to um so um you know, Jane and I, our first conversations were, you know, what about this first principle of rhetoric that we're taught that says rhetoric is the art of contingency? And um, we continued this conversation to recognize it's not the art of contingency, it's the art of um, getting rid of the problem of contingency. Mm -hmm. So to go back to Jane's um, frame of her own work, that she's interested in problems. Um, for her, she saw that the empire of rhetorical theory saw contingency as a problem. And so the art of contingency was actually the art of getting rid of the problem of contingency. Whereas Jane and I were trying to think of what if contingency were actually contingency and not a problem, but a generative possibility of creating other worlds and these other worlds would be worlds that um, were inhabitable for, um, for, for women, um, for people who have been constructed as other. Um, I'll pass it over to Jane. Yeah, I would, you know, I would add to that that when we think about contingency and break, it's often what Aristotle does, and we'll get into this later on. I mean, he divides it into two parts. You have probability and you have some baby cause, so the accidental. So the probability is, probability starts with the idea that we're attached to opinions that are associated with sensible people. And by, but Aristotle says men of a certain type, and he really does mean men of a certain type. And this is, this is where we, this is where we start. And he throws off, you know, the accidental or the random as existing as it's not approvable. What is existing or what is accidental or some baby cause or random contingency is something that's not approvable. And what's not approvable is also takes on qualities of people at some point if, as we, you know, we start to navigate this. It takes on qualities of what is female. It takes on qualities of, of the barbarian. 
Um, so as long as probability is starting with what sensible people, men of a certain type, hold to do, you know, in circumstances, that also attaches as well as to certain bodies or people. And this, you know, it's Marilyn and I have talked about this a lot. We're not trying to, it's not, we're not being anachronistic here. I mean, we're not just trying mm -hmm. to, well, I mean, but still there is this deep physical, metaphysical principle underneath this idea of probability and, and mm -hmm. it's physical. It goes mm -hmm. all the way back, as we'll say, to like unearthed at rest. And it, you know, it taps into metaphysical principles of the universe. So it's, you know, it's, it's deep. Like I said, you know, it's a big, deep, frozen kind of rock, if you will. Yeah. And so that actually brings us to the chapter one of the chapters that you, well, this is your sole author chapter, Jane, uh, the earth is not at rest and neither should be rhetoric. And so in this chapter, you talk about rhetoric as sort of deeply indebted to the context of physics and also that the two of them work together to kind of reinforce in Aristotle this notion that the earth is meant, just like language is meant to bring itself to rest, but that that is another way of saying it's meant to exclude the problem of difference for the sake of you know, perfection or completion. And that often that, that structures our relationship to civility because we think civility is something where, oh, the goal is to bring it to rest. But of course, if you think about like the problematic exclusionary logics of what you've discussed in the book, then all of a sudden civility maybe is not about bringing things to rest, right? But about in fact, turning toward and encountering difference. So can you want to talk a little bit more about that chapter? And then I think maybe we'll go back to this issue of tropes because I'm not actually sure that everyone listening knows what we mean by that. Okay, great. Yes, yeah, so I started off with uh, with the idea of the earth at rest because Richard McKeon, one of you know the great Aristotelian scholars, made this claim that if you want to understand um, the physics, you ought to read the rhetoric first. So I reversed that, and I thought, well, in this uh, kind of, if you read the rhetoric first, which is where I would always start, what do I see within the physics? And once you start with rhetoric first, what you see is that in many ways, I think it's the first hypertext because almost everywhere you go as you're moving through it, as Aristotle will say something like, as I said elsewhere, and then he'll say, as I said elsewhere, and there'll be a reference to the ethics or it'll be a reference to the politics and also Homer, you know, as Meryl Lee uh, has talked about. So everywhere you go, and if you would just flatten out this text, it would just be this massive kind of, almost like an internet, this big, massive uh, uh, external connections. Instead of like a hyperlink, you just have this phrase, as I said elsewhere. And so as you start like moving and traveling and uh, going through there, you eventually land on this idea, you know, that the most important principle of physics that has shaped, you know, Western thought is the fact that the earth is at rest. So what does that have to do with rhetoric? Uh, I mean, that will, uh, that's going to take us uh, to the tropes to figure out, well, what does that do? And how, what happens when you, when you begin to develop a system of exchange between people on an earth at rest? And what would it mean ultimately if you had a totally different paradigm, if there were a revolution, 
as there was a revolution in physics, and you would think, also, what would kind of uh, generative or new ways of thinking that could be produced out of that? But this relationship with the Earth and physics and the universe was early on was shunned. And I start off talking about a graveyard, and it's a fragment from our Isocrates, where you have uh, Gorgias, the office, and you have Isocrates, and Gorgias is looking at a globe, and Isocrates is standing by him, and in this kind of positioning, he's being dismissive of what Gorgias is doing. So you see this area where some early rhetoricians want to move towards and link up and think about communication and relationship to the earth and the universe, but you also see, and we know that Isocrates prevails. I mean, he moves on, it's very dismissive. You've got to get your feet on the ground, uh, look, uh, get into the world of, of pragmatics or the, get into the world of the everyday. And once you do that, then when will you look up? You got to look up. You got to see the stars, if you will. So I don't know. I think this might be a good place to go to tropes. Uh, mm -hmm. and you agree with that, Marilee? This might be a good place to. Yeah. Yeah. You want I to take off from that? Sure. Um, I'll move away from your uh, genius in talking about physics and the earth at rest and think about how so much of the ways, um, you know, rhetorical theory in its tradition, even as that tradition has attempted to be disrupted, even as we've attempted to disrupt it, we, we tend to replicate this notion of, um, having to uh, bring things to a rest. So uh, we have a periodic style that um, gets audiences to the end of a concept, the end of a sentence as quickly as possible. Um, we want to get to a place of rest. And so um, all of this um, deliberative uh, practice of, in particular, the U.S. civic realm um, is organized to bring things to a rest. And, um, and Jane and I asked that question very specifically, what happens when that place of rest becomes a place of oppression? And so with tropes, if everything in this rhetorical tradition is turning us to a rest, what's doing that turn? What's making it? Something is making it. And you could say, well, it's logic. Well, no, this is rhetoric we're talking about. What is turning us? Well, Jane and I felt started with antistrophe. So that if rhetoric is theorized in an antistrophic turn, it's a turn back and forth. And if I could just interrupt, that's Aristotle's first line in the rhetoric. First line in the rhetoric. Rhetoric is the antistrophe of dialectic. And I would say for the first couple years of our work together, we were just trying to figure out that first line. That first line took us everywhere. Just like Jane said, we created this whole intricate like internet of Aristotle trying to search for how antistrophe is working. And one day we found, we couldn't believe it. I mean, I think we both started crying. Antistrophe Aristotle says is a catastrophe. It's catastrophic in its turn. Antistrophe is designed to turn down meaning 
so that one meaning can be arrived at and rested upon. We're not making this up. It took us a long time to discover <laughs> that. It took us such a long time and we couldn't believe it. And we took it to a conference and um, I hope David DePew won't mind my um, bringing him into the conversation without asking his permission first, but he was the respondent to our paper. And he focused on this argument that we were making that an antistrophic rhetoric is literally a catastrophe, right? Uh, and he said, I couldn't believe that this was true. And I took it to my wife, who is a classicist. And she looked at it and she said, yes, they're right. <laughs> so, um, so this was one of the great joys of our initial years of working together. And when we found that this um, whole orchestration of bringing meaning to a rest that is actually catastrophic in its turn, clearly tropes created that. If tropes created it, there are other tropes. We can create other things. And so I'll turn it over to Jane now for her. Jane, do you want to chain off that? Do you want to carry forward? Yeah, sure. Uh, with tropes, uh, with tropes and a strophe is a, a movement. A trope is just simply a turn. You know, it's also related to the seasons. The seasons are tropes. They move, you know, we just entered uh, the trope of the fall, if you will. Uh, but these tropes, we started looking for them. And this is where we have just mounds of Excel spreadsheets where you have tropes, you have books on tropes, and they are thick, and there are literally thousands of them. And so the Greeks had their tropes, uh, and the Romans had their tropes, the, the English you know, added to them, and they're in alphabetical order. And isn't there another way to organize tropes? I mean, if there are turns, ha, isn't there another way to classify them? Might they, and their endings begin to be markers of what they were doing. So uh, what is a strophe doing? Or in, uh, what is a, in a metabole, what is a bole doing? In a fora, in a metaphora, or what is a fora actually doing? What, what are these things? And so, we began to look at them through another kind of a classification other than alphabetical order. And it was there that we discovered the trope of aleosis because it's part of a, it's not a fora, you know, it's not a strophe, it's not a bole. Uh, well, Marily, you jump in it and can talk about what a, where it comes from. Yeah, so we find this um, term, aloiosis, and um, we see that it is identified as a trope um, by Plutarch, for example, which is uh, who I write about in uh, this book. And so we see that it has some um, remnants or, you know, like if we were um, archaeologists, you know, there's archaeological evidence of aloiosis as a trope. Um, in ancient Greek rhetorical theorizing. But, you know, nobody reads Plutarch. We just don't read Plutarch. And I'm not saying we should. I mean, this isn't an argument to read Plutarch. But his um, work on rhetoric emphasized aloiosis as the major trope. And so Jane and I are thinking, like, what would it be like? You know, the uh, rhetorical tradition emphasizes metaphor. Metaphor is our master trope. And metaphor is this process of rendering the unfamiliar 
familiar, um, making meaning by recognizing the likeness of the familiar in difference, thus eradicating difference, eradicating that which is other than the always already familiar. So what would a rhetorical theory look like if it were actually, if it had a master trope of Aloysius, or if, you know, even the idea of master tropes. So other people have said, what you're really dealing with are the enslaved tropes, not the master tropes. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And I think that's right. Aloysius didn't go away by accident. It was a very, very powerful trope. And Jane found uh, the, uh, Jane, do you want to share the shipwreck? Um, In the shipwreck, the only thing that survived was metaphor. Yeah, I think that was in uh, Janae. We we mentioned that in the book, it's this whole idea that, that, you know, all the tropes, if you imagine them on a ship and they start moving and there's a a wreck out at sea, I guess they hit the iceberg that I was talking about. And the only thing that survives is metaphor. Um, But Wayne Booth also talks about, too, he goes, there's so many metaphors that I've extrapolated that if, you know, there'll be more metaphors and people by, I don't know what year it was, say, you know, 32 or something like that. He has a really funny thing that he does with it. So it's it's dominant. And, you know, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I love metaphors. But the thing is, I can't write an aloysis. And when I was teaching school, you know, you might teach, uh, you know, I taught seventh grade back in the 70s. And you might have uh, students studying poetry and you get them to write a metaphor. And they can do that. They can write a simile. But I have tried and tried and tried. How would I write an aloysis? What's happened to us in our imagination? Mm. And this shipwreck. If, you know, if metaphor is what survived, you know, what's back there. We know that aliosis was back there. And we also know that, you know, it was still alive in the Renaissance. We, what happened? Where is it? One of the things Jane and I talked about, Jane just um, hit on it so well in the story of our work, is that what a failure of imagination we have created by reducing everything to metaphoric meaning-making in an antistrophic system that is periodic, bringing all to rest um, in the name of probability to a particular kind of man. Like what, um, what uh, failure of imagination, and we use that phrase a million times, <laughs> then we went to a conference in Greece and as we, we flew home the day before 9-11, and we had a very, very significant experience on that flight. We don't have time to get into it right now. Um, we land, 9-11 happens. And the commentary starts coming out. And um, one of the lines of commentary was, what a failure of imagination we have created. And Jane and I just thought, yes, our failure to engage mm-hmm. that which we have otherized, yeah. those who we have othered, our 
failure of imagination to engage produces this catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so Jane and I are always thinking about like, how do we remedy that failure of imagination? How do we turn to tropes, all the tropes, not just the master tropes and not just substituting the master tropes with new master tropes, but all the tropes, especially those that take us away from empire like Aloysius um, does. How do we theorize a rhetoric through that tropical abundance to uh, 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 blow open our imaginations again? Mm-hmm. Because all we can see in this failure of imagination is catastrophe. Yeah, if I could yeah, just, I think, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I would just say that what you reminded me of so much there is one of my favorite quotes from Nietzsche is that uh, in his lectures on rhetoric, is that no one should ever believe that rhetoric just fell from the heavens. The Greeks worked on it more than any other people and more than any other thing. That's Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. When are we going to start working on rhetoric? When? That's yeah. what I want to know. Here we are in a, you know, in a 2,500 years later, we have a democracy. Uh, we have a system of rhetoric. It's time to work on it. It's time to theorize it for America. They did it for themselves. The Athenians did it for themselves. It migrated, it was used in other parts. But now is the time to work on this for the Americas, in the Americas. And we have vast resources. We have tropes, we have indigenous people, we have all sorts of ways that we could bring to the table to recreate and to re-theorize an art that our democracy deserves. Yeah, and I was thinking too that the connection you make in the book between Rev, I know, claps, we're all Zoom clapping, <laughs> yeah. um, has a lot of implications for how we think about climate change as well, because I think so much of the our inability to confront and you know imagine alternatives to climate change comes from this earth at rest kind of model, even though the earth is quite literally showing you it's not at rest, and yet our discourse continues, right? Because we're so habituated to this way of thinking. I, yeah, I was thinking somebody, somebody who does climate change rhetoric should pick this up and, and run with it in that direction for sure. So if you're out there, grad student, I just found your dissertation. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think it's brilliant. Um, and there are some other, I don't know if you want to talk about some of the other tropes, but there's um, metabole. Uh, I know my grief is awful, but there are some other ones too. So it's not just that the book kind of just keeps repeating, but you actually even have those charts. Uh, that talk about the way that certain tropes um, like can do change and substitution and transposition. And so there's some really cool ones in here. So we could do that. Or also, I'd love to hear more from Marilee about uh, your piece on um, syntax in the cities and, and what, what you think, expanding on what Jane just said, the implications for civic discourse are for whether we choose one type of tropological tradition versus creating something new or, or, or excavating what, what clearly existed at one point and has, you know, been shipwrecked. I'm happy to go in either direction. Jane, do you have a preference? No, go with your syntax in the city. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm probably going to make a, uh, an array of intellectual errors as I proceed. So I beg everybody's generosity in thinking with me and knowing that I'm open to um, learning. But I, I'm um, interested in, in thinking about um, uh, 
syntax, um, getting outside of syntax and cities at war. Um, so this was really um, a theme of my Plutarch essay. And what is it to get out of syntax, um, to get beyond syntax? Well, there's something about empire that happens even at a grammatical level. And when we think about getting out of syntax, there's something that can um, direct our imagination to um, different ways of structuring meaning. And this week in my um, first year seminar at University of Richmond on rhetoric and gender violence, we read Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage. And, uh, and so what I want, what I'm thinking about now is that, you know, think for example about the two tropes uh, that she deals with in one of her chapters of the angry black woman. And I would say, you know, she takes an allostrophic turn and produces white girl tears as a trope of resistance to angry black woman trope. And so that angry black woman trope is a kind of um, catastrophe for black women in terms of silencing. Um, and Brittany Cooper has a way of turning that trope otherwise to call out um, empire and turn it into white girl tears. And so there's a playfulness, there's a, a, a way that's beyond syntax um, that gives escape routes. And I think that that um, in part is what we're seeing with um, all kinds of new work that is emerging from Black Lives Matter, um, the invention of um, new tropes, new terms. I'm thinking of, you know, Kate Mann's Hympathy. I'm thinking of Moya Ball's Misogynoir. Um, these new ways of, of calling out whiteness, white supremacy, uh, patriarchal supremacy in these playful tropes. Um, I think if I were to write again my Plutarch chapter, I'd continue with these more contemporary examples of getting beyond syntax and cities at war. Um, and exemplified in this explosion of imagination we're seeing in uh, the current revolutionary circles um, that are predominantly along uh, race lines, race and gender lines. Yeah, and, and queer studies has done a lot too with this with this vocab. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's great, and I like proliferating language is an awesome project. There's nothing that breaks my heart more than when people say sentences like, "Can't you just say what you mean? Why do we need so many words?" <laughs> Which my grandfather just said to me, and I was like, "That's so sad for me because now I can't like you anymore because you said the thing that I hate the most in the whole world." Yeah. Um, and then how do you how do you see the relationship between cities at war and syntax? So and, and do you want to maybe define syntax? I mean, it's a domain of grammar, but I, I, I never assume people know what we mean by things. Sure. Yeah. Um, so um, there's something about grammar when it works in a, a periodic way that um, forces a winner loser structure. And so when you're working at a grammatical level for, uh, you know, uh, empire and subject or um, win or loser, um, it makes sense that the whole system of exchange that flourishes from there um, produces, uh, you know, communication as a total system, right? A total system that is structured in and through that syntax of winning and losing. So it's really a, 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 a 
it's the precondition is um, of cities at war. Um, and I think what Jane and I are always up to is trying to see at rhetorical and grammatical levels, at the level of language, what are what is serving empire here and how do we dismantle it and inspire an explosion of imagination to um, make this allostrophic turn, this turn to uh, difference that doesn't serve empire, that doesn't serve white supremacy, that doesn't serve patriarchy, that doesn't serve um, heteronormativity, um, and um, which is an odd word to use right now, but um, because in so many ways we want to talk about heteros as difference, but heteronormativity as it gets deployed oh. through LGBTQIA uh, is empire. Mm, that's a good observation. So I it's thought like about the that, yeah. very, very dangerous co-optation of heteros um, that we need to learn to resist, right? As heteros gets troped through metaphor, it becomes a metaphor for the marriage of man and a woman or the binary love of a man and a woman. And, um, and that metaphorization or that synonymic fusion of heteros with um, heterosexuality is deeply problematic because it's another way that we uh, exclude mm -hmm. the capacity to imagine um, uh, difference. Um, mm -hmm. So um, I'm not sure if I've answered the question, your question. Yeah, no, no, that's, I think that's really helpful. Um, and I like the addition of the thought about heteros. I hadn't thought about it, but that's um, my safe zone trainer brain is on now, you know, and I'm like, oh no, do I need to, I, and I do love, I mean, safe zone trainings, which are the things we do on campus. I'm, I'm not telling you, I'm telling the listener. These are things we do on campus to try to educate people about LGBTQ issues. And a lot of it revolves around language. And one of the big things there is like, your language has to evolve. You have to play with it. You have to be willing to take some chances because if not, you don't get inclusion, right? And people always want to you know, push back on that. It's like, well, you have two choices. Be exclusionary and keep your language and, and keep your brain tiny and keep your imagination tiny or proliferate, you know, intellectually and linguistically and expand who gets to be included. So I, this is a great conversation. Yeah. So from there, I think we could go to maybe other cool tropes. I, and this might also be a chance to talk about, you have some contributing authors to this piece. Um, one of which writes a really unique essay. Essay is Parataxis uh, that talks about some of these other tropes, uh, metabole and kinesis. And so that might be a cool place to not only give a nod to your other including authors, but also talk about how it's not just Aloysius, but it's this whole constellation of tropes that have somehow disappeared and, and for a reason, which is to keep the earth at rest, right? To keep rhetoric at rest. Part of how Odile and Michelle, uh, Marie Odile Hobeka and Michelle Kennerly are our two um, uh, uh, authors of the additional chapters in this book. And when Jane and I began writing, we weren't thinking that this was going to be an edited volume. You know, we just thought that this was going to be our writing. But we happened to be going to conferences and being in extended conversations with both Odile and Michelle. And, um, and Michelle, um, who Jane can talk about um, helped us with the cover of the book, um, make Jane's dream come true in terms of the cover of the book. But Jane, I'll let you talk about that. Um, um, and so as Jane and I engaged our conversations with Odile and Michelle, 
you know, part of our work together is not just about producing new rhetorical theory or, or dismantling traditions of rhetorical theory. It's also about kind of performing, experimenting with the very kind of theory that we're trying to write. And we used collaboration as the uh, performative um, experience of our, of our theory. And it struck us that uh, we should expand the collaboration um, to include Odile and Michelle because they were part, they became part of, they, part of the conversation, you know, we were all magnetized. And, um, and so that's how Odile and Michelle came into the project and they wrote brilliant essays um, that I highly recommend. Um, Odile is really, I think, Lee, you said it so well, that Odile's takes us through this, um, you know, constellation of tropes that um, might be uh, seen in a, you know, this allostrophic um, transmutated uh, world of invention and uh, generation of ideas. So it's just a brilliant essay. Um, and parataxis has always been something that Odile and I are very interested in and, and have lots of conversations about, um, in part because um, we're really interested in poetry, poetry and rhetoric. Um, and that paratactic um, style is the counter to the periodic style. So whereas a periodic style is trying to bring you to the period at the end of the sentence, parataxis runs on and on and on, and it's the style of poetry. So it's the style of Homeric epic, and I've written on this quite a bit. And, um, and so that running on where you never get to a period allows for this kind of expansive imagination. Um, and it also involves a kind of memory apparatus that's quite different. You know, in Earth at Rest, you get to that period, you learn your point, and sometimes you can rest on that point. And your whole capacity for memory of where you came from, how you got there, is not part of the rhetorical and grammatical apparatus of meaning making, whereas parataxis is. You have to remember kind of everything prior to the next coordinating conjunction um, and so Odile's essay is just brilliant in that regard. And Michelle Kennerly's, of course, is just um, this eloquent, beautiful essay in uh, like a critical uh, ballet tradition, you know, just this beautiful essay. You mentioned, uh, I'm just going to kind of back up a little bit here, where we were talking about our charts and those systems of change um, and also the cover. But those systems, those changes that you're talking about are Quintilian develops, says that there are really four ways that tropes can work, right? And one way that they work is through substitution. One way they work is adding, subtracting, and transformation. And in those other, in, uh, in uh, Odile's essay, I think she really deals with some of those different kinds of plays and with those different systems of change. So she has those tropes in there and kind of playing off about are you what are you doing here in terms of how how does this kind of a trope change or alter? Yeah, well, I think what's cool about the whole book is it sort of draws into it. It, it, it there's a there's a really good um, image. Oh, I'm gonna mispronounce it, man. I really gotta learn. I'm gonna increase my vocabulary. 
But in the essay you're talking about, there's this figure, and it's not a dream catcher, but it is another kind of piece of sculpture where they layer all of these twisty, like circle-y, twisty, roundy things on top of each other, on top of each other, on top of each other. And the goal is to confuse and to capture sort of like the infringement of the other. Oh, dang it. I wish I could remember. But it's not like a dream catcher because a dream catcher is designed to capture. Whereas this, is it a colum? Colum? Yeah. Colum, yeah. And, uh, and it made me think that um, a lot of what is happening with the way that you all are re-theorizing re these taxonomies, for lack of a better word, is to almost turn them into, to take the substitution in one category and the addition in the other category and the subtraction in the other category and just weave those all together until they pretty much all just become displacement in a way or, or, or supplementing kind of the, the dangerous supplement because either they are standing in for the trope that they have turned down or the trope is interfere or, or that trope that's been shipwrecked is interfering with that. So there's like a haunt, right? Because even though you have these nice neat taxonomies, there's all of this haunting in the margin from these other tropes that got turned away so that these other tropes could have their little categories. And so it was really cool to see all of the spatial metaphors um, happening throughout the book. Oh no, I used metaphor. <laughs> but um, like the column and, and, and the tables and it just had a very cool performative vibe about just not messiness, but just complicating, right? repeatedly complicating. Not that I didn't understand the argument, but that every time something made sense, it got complicated by something else that had to be turned down for this thing to make sense. And I just appreciate the care and attention that you must have put into making the book work this way. Also, the only book I've ever seen with kind of a leadership editorial vibe that is a collaboration that then brings people on board, but it's not an edited volume. It is your book that the two of you co-authored, mm -hmm. yet you're also single, yet you also have people that you are editing. I mean, just the whole thing is such a cool performance of the argument of the book. Um, and I'd love to hear more about the cover because I think the cover kind of ties it together nicely. And if people can't see it, uh, click in the show notes. There's a picture of the cover of the book in the show notes on your app or on the website. Uh, yes, that is uh, John Bayan's uh, Emerging Equality. It's a sculpture. Uh, it's in Galway, Ireland. And uh, what I really like about that is the, it shows a figure, it's a stone, and it shows a figure of a female emerging from it. Uh, and the material underneath it, the statue, it says that it's it's using, what I like about it is it's using the female as a figure of the other who is breaking out of a system. So I see this breaking out of stone, out of an earth at rest. And it's the female figure because in Aristotle and his metaphysics, you know, he references that there are really 10, oppos 10 oppositions. Um, these didn't come from him, but he uses them to accommodate. So one major opposition is rest and motion. Another one is straight and crooked. And for example, he accommodates that in the rhetoric where he says, you know, you can't, you shouldn't be warping or making judgment warped. You want a, a straight line, which is really antistrophic. And another metaphysical principle is male and female. And so this, as a principle, coming out of the earth at rest, uh, breaking out and uh, quality emerging, a new kind of a system that's coming forth is what I really like about this uh, statue and this cover. 
Yeah, it's a, it's great. Um, and it's thought provoking too, because the first thing I thought is, Ooh, I wonder what that is. And what does that have to do with the book? And then I have to read the book to find out. So, well, um, this has been a wonderful conversation. We are coming up on what I call sort of like your 10 minutes of, of wrap up. So this is a great time to let the reader know anything else you want to highlight about the book, anything else you want to highlight about the project. We can also talk about other projects that you're working on or other directions you're taking. So this is kind of the freestyle time, but we can also, there are definitely lots of things in this book we haven't touched upon. I mean, we could have 10 hours and probably not hit everything in this book, but that's why the listeners get to go get a copy of it. And I'll, um, I'll tell them more about how to do that at the end of the interview, but you two have anything else you want to add? Um, other thoughts that we haven't chatted on? Well, I'll just, I'll share that, um, you know, one of the projects that I'm involved in now for example, reading our book with a lot of Afrofuturist feminism, Zakia Iman Jackson's Becoming Human, Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World, reading our book um, along with uh, Horia Batolja's um, uh, Whites, Jews, and Us Toward a Politics of Revolutionary Love. Um, so reading this dismantled rhetoric and uh, an attempt to rein reinvent rhetoric through a very different system of exchange is really in a uh, conversation with I want to have a conversation with these other works in black theory and one of the concerns I always had about our book and this is part of what Jane is trying to address in the afterward is you know, we have to be really careful saying we want an aloeostrophic rhetoric because I know what it can be to turn to something strange. So like incel culture, you uh -huh. know, that's strange. Yep. That's alien. That's yep. different. Um, you know, how is our call for aloeostrophic rhetorical theorizing not something that can be appropriated by incels? Yeah. And well, so, and I think um, I think the response to that, because I had sort of a similar thing when I, because I'm writing a piece, I've been writing a piece on Trump syntax, because I'm a syntax person. So um, syntax for me is like my, like, how do we theorize syntax alloystrophically is now the new question of the intro of my book that I thought I had finished. And then I read your book and now I'm like, I oh, dang, now I got to go back and <laughs> add this in. But um, when you talk about the parataxic style versus the periodic style, like to what degree is Trump not the parataxis in some cases we've always dreamed of and how do you get out of that and I think with incels it's because their turning away of difference is a reification of non-difference and so you don't have right you, you you may have a turning away in some cases but you have a turning back too and that's similar with Trump the parataxis still brings us to rest on the same old in my view um like hateful kinds of exclusionary logics but the style of the performance is is pseudo parataxic I would say but that's, I think, how I would argue that. And I'm not telling you how to write it. I'm just saying I don't worry as much about that because where there is non-legitimate turn to difference, there is always a reification of sameness. And if you find that, then, because I'm not defending incels, I don't, you know. And so it can't just be power. It has to be yeah. more like empire. It has to be supremacy. Mm -hmm. So if it's serving supremacy, whether it's white supremacy or a particular patriarchal supremacy, a combination of the two, which is pretty mm -hmm, much always mm -hmm. the case, yeah. It's that supremacy that we are turning mm. up out of, um, away from, and um, and I so that's that supremacy really versus power. That's great. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested yeah. in reading. You know, Jane and I wrote this from the perspective of women, but at the time I wasn't questioning my um, 
whiteness. And I want to question my whiteness now. And I want to think about um, how my experience as a woman has to at some point intersect with my experience as a white woman in order for me to recognize um, the turns that have to be taken to dismantle the empire of the self-same um, through these aleostrophic turns. Have you read Christina Sharp's In the Wake on Blackness and Being from Duke two years ago, maybe two, three years ago? And she talks about the ship metaphor and blackness is the turning toward the wake and then also having to keep, so having to keep two eyes in two different places. And I kept thinking about the turning, 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 turning and thinking oh. how, how much these two books have to offer each other. Yeah. I'm going to read that now. It's great. Uh, it's fabulous. You won't be able to put were, it down. Yeah, I can't. Uh, thank you for that, Lee. For a second, I thought when you said Christina Sharp, you were talking about our colleague in communication studies who just won the Leslie Baxter Award for, um, for her scholarship. Um, and Christina Sharp helped us with our trope uh, map. Remember Jane? Oh, yeah. you know, Christina, <laughs> who, who, who helped work with that and create that Excel chart. And Christina and I at the time just printed out all these pages of tropes and taped them together and we would unroll it like a scroll and it became like a carpet <laughs> of tropes that would cover the floor. So when you say Christina Sharp, I thought you were going to talk about her, but I will Oh, I don't know this other Christina Sharp. Sharp. I'll have to look them up. Yeah, but you'll, yeah, the, you'll love that book. And then um, Jane, do you want to say anything by way of wrapping up? Oh, this is so exciting. I can't wait to read everything that comes out of this. <laughs> well, we've talked about, you know, space and place. We, you know, we talked about how the periodic style takes you to a place of rest. So I'm always interested in where are spaces that kind of get out of that. And I was just one of an example I thought about, and that was the death of Rosa Parks when uh, she was laid in laid in uh, honor in the United States Capitol Rotunda. And uh, what happened in that case is that the rotunda couldn't accommodate her as a civilian, as an African American. You would need the capital architect to create a resolution wow. and create this viewing. Now, if they were going to do this, it's not that people were objecting, but you have to go through this. But it has to, but the fact it couldn't be done. Yeah, you just can't yeah. insert, you yeah. just can't yeah. add, you just, that. Mm, right. And then once that happens, then you have all of these people swirling around. You have people paying attention or past presidents, uh, people moving, uh, honoring and looking at and that that is a space that was mm. up and it's gone so these kind of it's just look for them to appear you know where are they uh i don't even know how you build on them but it's openings opening uh, opening the system oh that's so good oh we have, we just wrote like nine essays in this <laughs> short interview <laughs> well um so just to wrap up, because even though we could talk forever, I don't think the listener wants to listen forever. I want to remind everyone that we have been interviewing the book, A Revolution in Tropes, Alloyostrophic Rhetoric by Jane Sutton and Marilee Mifsfoot. And congratulations are in order to Marilee, who has recently been promoted to professor. So Zoom claps across, mm -hmm. the, across the board. And as a quick reminder, you can pick the book up um, in multiple forms from Lexington Books. And I just want to remind everyone that we really appreciate uh, publishers like Lexington and the other university presses and the other presses that work with academic authors because they do a really good job of producing excellent work. And without our support, 
uh, these kinds of works don't get out, at least not to the quality and frequency we'd like. So even if you're not thinking about picking up a copy for yourself to read, it's really nice to buy a copy and donate to your public library so that other people can read it or your university library. Uh, I used to recommend you ask your university to purchase it and have it on the shelf, but nobody has a budget anymore. So uh, if you believe in the book and you've enjoyed the conversation uh, and your university like mine is not buying any more books for the moment, maybe you could buy the copy and donate somewhere so that lots of people can get their hands on this. Because I just want to reiterate, tropes are not uh, a quaint conversation topic. They are essential to how we communicate. And as everyone has said here today, your imagination is severely limited when you only allow yourself to have kind of ready-made tropes available to you. So with that said, um, this has been an awesome interview. Is there anything else anybody wants to add before we wrap? Thank you, Lee. You were yeah, wonderful thank you, to work with. Thoroughly enjoyed this. And yeah, thank, uh, you, thank you so much. Yeah. All right, thank terrific. You. Well, take care, everyone. Stay safe, wash your hands, and we will talk to you soon.